Well, good morning. It's hard to believe this is true, but this is week 22 of looking at the hymns of the church and looking at the gospel truth in the hymns of the church. Can you believe we've had 22 sermons on hymns? That's a lot of sermons. That's a lot of hymns. Um, it's my policy, though, to never preach a series more than 23 weeks. That's not really a policy, but that is to say that we have one more week on the hymns, and then we're going to transition. We're going to change series for the fall, and uh, we'll have a series beginning September the 13th. Uh, it's going to be titled, The Church According to Scripture. And my hope is to look from Genesis to Revelation at the promises that God has made to a particular people. Who those people are, what those people do, why they do what they do, how they do what they do. And my hope is that that will take us uh, through the fall to Thanksgiving where we'll have the, the usual transition to Thanksgiving into the, the Christmas season the Advent season. So, for those of you who like to know where we're going and where we are, that's where we're going. And where we are this morning is considering gospel truth in a particular hymn that you know probably by a different tune than we will sing this morning. But it is a sweet hymn. It is a hymn of William Williams from the 1700s. William Williams wrote this sweet hymn, and his nickname, by the way, was, and I'm not making this up, the Sweet Singer of Wales. And so this morning we have a sweet hymn. It's put to a really sweet tune, and it echoes some gospel truth that I want to underscore for all of our good as we live in a fallen world and as we need to be reminded of God's goodness to us. And really, that's been the hope of this series on the hymns. I've told you several times, my hope is that you might even make a playlist of these hymns and that that play, playlist would bless your week. You know, when you're cleaning house, listen to the playlist. When you're driving to the grocery store or taking the kids to practice, listen to the hymns. Be reminded of these gospel truths so that what we do on Sunday morning would spill over into our week and we would be reminded of gospel truth throughout the week. That's how I operate. That's been a blessing to me, and I encourage you. It's never too late to do that, but let these hymns bless you in your week. Now, as we prepare for this talk, let me tell you, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament, several key passages from the Old Testament, so we're going to be historical, there needs to be some explanation, but let me introduce the text this way. Have you ever heard the adage, the wise saying, don't make fun of the way old people look at your own family reunion? Have you ever heard that adage? Don't make fun of the way the old people look at your own family family reunion? Okay, that's not really an adage. I came up with that yesterday while cutting grass, trying to think how to prepare us for this reading. But it is a true statement. 
Don't make fun of the old people and the way they look at your family reunion because why? You're going to look like them one day, right? It's inevitable. It is in your DNA. You know, I'm starting to look like my father and like my grandfather. It's in the DNA. Now, you can make fun of people at other people's family reunions, but not at your own because you will soon become that person. So why do I say that? As we look historically in the book of Exodus at the people of God, Israel, the church, it'd be easy to criticize these people and talk about how worthless and faithless they were. But of course, the more you look into your past, the more you're going to see that you are the same. So bear that in mind as we read and discuss this morning some of Israel's failures. Three passages. First, from Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 to 22. This is the Lord leading his people out of Egyptian bondage. They had been in bondage to Egypt for some 400 years. And the passage there says, verse 21, By day the Lord went ahead of them, his people, in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. It was always with them. A, a, a cloud to give shade by day, which we appreciate right now, right? The importance if you're going to be in the desert. And then a fire, a pillar of fire by night to guide them and lead them to, to light their path so that they could see. Then in Exodus 14, verses 13 to 14, the Lord leading and protecting his people through the parted sea. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And then from Exodus chapter 16, the Lord providing for his people in the desert wilderness. The Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight, you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. And the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, 
The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. And everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. And then verse 35, the Israelites ate this manna for 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. Historical words, true words written long ago, recorded for us that we might see the faithfulness of God to his people that has persisted through all generations, even to this day and forevermore. Let's pray that God will open our eyes to believe that. Lord, would you open our eyes this morning to see that you have always loved, always led, always guided, always provided for your people. And Lord, this morning, would you enable us to cast all our anxiety on you because you care for us. Lord, would you even allow us to bid our anxious fears goodbye. We ask this and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for the past few years, my mother-in-law has been fascinated with family historical research. You know, this DNA test, DNA studies, where you can get into the nitty-gritty of where you have come from and who your people were. She asked me one time in the last year, she said, Paul, maybe you should do this. I said, no, thank you. You don't want to ever ask too many questions and find out too, many, too much information about where you've come from. That's just a policy that I have, right? The more we know, the more we'll shake our head in this life. I'm convinced that's true. But there has been a fascination, a fascination with where have we come from? Who are we? What is our essence? What is at the very center of us? And you could say that Exodus gives us that kind of a spiritual, historical, spiritual DNA study of where we've come from. And we learn some very important things about God's people and about ourselves and about the nature of our God. And those are the three points that I want us to work through swiftly but hopefully effectively this morning. The first is this. God's people are a wandering people. And they really always have been a wandering people. What do I mean by that? I mean that they have been a homeless, wandering people. Spiritually speaking, that certainly is true. But in Genesis chapter 3, that's where we see it began, where the man and the woman have sinned and God banishes them from the garden. He says, no more will you have access and since then, God's people have been scattered about, wandering in various seasons and kinds of exile. None has been physically harder than those 40 years that Israel spent wandering about in the wilderness, in the desert, as is recorded for us in Exodus and in Numbers. That exile continues in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he says, We are aliens and strangers in this world. 
Hebrews chapter 11, verses 14 to 16. He says that we're longing for a heavenly country and a city that is yet to come. And so spiritually, it's always been true of God, God's people. We are waiting to be reunited with him according to his eternal plan on his schedule. And so God's people are a wandering people and in a sense, a homeless people. That's still true for us today. And perhaps some of our greatest anxieties and fears in this life are when we forget that. And we think that the earth is our home. And our houses are our homes. Or our vacation houses are our homes. And we have to hold on to these. We have to pass these on. And while these are great and wonderful treasured possessions and blessings in this life... This world is not our ultimate home. We are homeless awaiting a greater city, a greater, a greater country yet to come. The second thing about those wandering people is that they are often aimless. They're often directionless, particularly when they don't listen to the Lord and to his guidance just kind of aimlessly wandering about, moving from one place to another, from one thing to the next, maybe from one person to the next, trying to find purpose, trying to find meaning, trying to find significance. God's people are lost. They always have been. God's people are confused. They always have been. God's people tend to be bewildered. And that's our condition too. You can fill in the blank for yourself or for your people and your history that you have had wandering years, aimless years, seeking purpose, seeking significance, seeking meaning, whether from degrees, from jobs, from relationships, and they leave you feeling aimless and purposeless because that is not ultimately what you've been created for. You know, there's a reason why a lot of the hymns we have sung have echoed this truth about our lostness and our wandering nature. Let me remind you of some of those. You know, we sang a hymn several weeks ago called, I Was a Wandering Sheep. And then there's that line in that hymn that says, we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. We're prone to leave the God that we love. Or one we haven't looked at and we don't have time to look at is, I am a poor, wayfaring stranger wandering through this barren land. And so God's people are a wandering people. But secondly, what's also true of us when we look back in time at where we've come from and when we look at the present of who we are, God's people are a grumbling people. We are a complaining people. We are quick to be able to communicate our frustrations and disappointments with the Lord that things should have gone differently for us, that he has let us down. We're a grumbling people. Now, there are two ways that we see it in this passage and around this passage, some of which we didn't read, particularly in chapter 16. But that is that they're a hungry people, literally. And they're a reminiscing people. First, they're hungry. Or we might say they're hangry. 
Some of you have seen those commercials on, t on TV from, from the Snickers candy bar. It says this, you are not you when you're hungry. Those are some pretty funny commercials, and they're actually pretty realistic. Uh, we have some teenagers in our family. We understand being hangry, right, being so hungry that you're angry. It's just true to humanity, and it's always been true. You know, remember that Esau sold his birthright. Why? He was hungry. He was famished. He saw stew, he wanted stew, and Jacob capitalized on it. Esau was dominated by his stomach. And here's Israel wandering in the desert just as we would be hungry, hangry, complaining and grumbling against the Lord, saying things like, if we had never left Egypt, where they had been in bondage and slavery for some 400 years. If we were just back there, at least we'd have a pot of meat to eat. Grumbling against Moses, grumbling against the Lord. And Israel, no doubt, as I thought about this this week, you think of that. Now, numerically, their academic questions, was Israel in the desert 60,000 in number? Were they 600,000 in number? Were they more than that? I'm going to leave that to the academics to figure. We can run with the small number of 60,000. Imagine 60,000 people wandering about, wondering, what are we going to do for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Walking about in a wilderness, in a desert, is more descriptive of where they were. Those are hard times. We would be those hangry people if those circumstances were ours. So it's easy to read this and think, man, what a faithless people, grumbling all the time against the Lord. You need to see yourself in this passage. You and I would be no different. When faced with hunger, we will turn against loved ones. We will turn against the Lord. And Israel's been eating their meals on the go. They've been living in true hardship, real suffering. And this has caused them to reminisce, to think back, to look back and say, well, we wish things were as they were before the Lord let us out of Egypt, out of bondage. For a moment, they think, we'd rather be suffering there than walking hungry here. But then this brings us to the true beauty of the passage. Despite there being a wandering people who are homeless and aimless, despite there being a grumbling people who are hungry and reminiscing, God proves his nature to them. He shows that he is a gracious God, long-suffering, full of provision, full of compassion. And you know that this God is referred to as Jehovah, but really, literally, Yahweh, his covenant name, his personal name that he's given to his people, that he's used with his people, an affectionate name where he's bound himself to them by promise that he will be their God and that they will be his people even when they don't feel like it, even when they're hungry and grumbling he will never leave them he will never forsake them they're to always look to him in faith and so he shows his faithfulness he is both covenantal and you could say parental 
He's like a parent. He's covenantal in that he's been long-suffering. He has shown that, that hessed love, that tender-hearted loving kindness, that steadfastness, that mercy that is unrelenting to a wayward, wandering, grumbling, rebellious people. And he has provided for them. He's led them, he's provided for them, he's protected them, and he is always teaching them. And these are the ways that he shows that covenantal love through a kind of parental love. Those of you who are parents, I want you to think about this. Those of you who are children, think about how you've been the recipients of this kind of parental love. But first, the Lord has led them by this pillar of cloud by day and this fire by night. Now, quite literally, this is the Lord giving a manifestation of himself, what could be called a theophany, a presence of himself, and it's cloud by day to shield them from the sun and fire by night to warm them, to light their path, that they may be able to move, that they may be able to make progress towards that promised land that he'd made them. And so God is our leader, and he has always led his people faithfully. And I know you might think, well, it sure would be nice to have a, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night in my life right now for God to lead me, for God to guide me, because I'm having to make decisions. I'm having to do things quickly, and I don't know what to do. If only he would guide me and lead me. Well, he does guide us and lead us. Not by cloud, not by fire, but by his living word, by his Holy Spirit, working in the lives of his people, through his church family, encouraging, loving. See, God is still at work guiding us, but like those grumbling Israelites in the desert, we're not so quick to see it when we're hungry, when we feel like we're without. But he's still guiding his people. He's still directing our path. More than leading, he also provides. This is that beautiful part of the story. You know, you can't read this enough. It is always amazing to hear God's supernatural work, his provision, doing things his way. But they are hungry. And he says, okay, I'll give you meat. And I'll give you bread. And somehow in God's mysterious sovereignty and his great provision, it says that quail birds, edible birds, came down and descended upon the land around the Israelites every evening, and they would have meat to eat. And in the morning, he gave those specific directions where he would give what he called bread from heaven, what's called manna, what is literally the transla translation that is in the text that says, they looked at it and they said, what is it? That's manna. Manna means, what is it? We've never seen anything quite like this before. But it was like a honey wafer, sweet and good and nourishing for a lot of walking in the desert. And we read this and we might say to ourselves, well, it sure would be nice to have a little bit of that manna right now. Times are hard. Times are difficult. And yet God is our provider too, always providing what we need. Even though we do live through fear, uncertainty, not knowing, well, what do we do next? But God has promised that we can be calm. He will provide for our needs. 
And that requires a tremendous amount of faith on our part. But some of you could come up and take the microphone and say, oh, wait a minute, I have a story to tell. When I was in an uncertain place, not knowing where my provisions would come, and the Lord provided exactly what was needed right on time. And it tested our faith, it challenged us, but he proved himself to be our faithful provider. I don't doubt there are a lot of stories like this that could be told because God works, he leads, he provides for his people then and now and forevermore. And then thirdly, he's the protector of his people. And the passage shows us that in chapter 14 where he says, I'll always be before you. I will always lead you. And he even caused the waters to stack up. And he said, those Israelites who are chasing you, who are the source of your great anxious fear, you'll never see them again. They're about to be erased. And only God has the right to do this. This is God's judgment. This is God's act on behalf of his people. He can do this. And he did. He saved his people. He protected them from their greatest fear that was literally right behind them threatening them. And then in all this, God proves himself to be the great teacher of his people. Verse 35 of chapter 16 says that, and the Lord fed them manna for 40 years in the desert. Over and over and over again, the Lord is showing, he's demonstrating, he is teaching them that he is faithful. He's faithful to his promises even when it doesn't feel like it in the heat of the moment, in the midst of difficulty, at the time of anxiety. The truth is, the scriptures tell us these stories not just because they're historical, but in some form, these stories are unfolding in our own pilgrimage, in our own wandering years. That God is showing us he is a faithful leader, protector, provider, and teacher. And he's worthy of your trust and he's worthy of mine. And in our darkest and hardest moments are when we need to remember this the most. But we are each pilgrims wandering in a barren land, a hard land that has no categories for our faith and for the God that we're worshiping this morning. Derek Thomas has a wonderful quote that sums up so much of what I'm trying to say this morning. It's from an article called The Christian Life as Pilgrimage. Listen to this quote. He says, The Christian life is a journey. A journey that is exciting, fraught with tales of valor and danger. Throughout it, we gain glimpses of God's provision, his intervention, and his rescue of us at every turn. We have no idea what each day may bring forth, but we are assured that nothing will happen apart from the will of our Heavenly Father. And so we follow him confidently. Wherever he leads us, whether in green pastures and beside still waters or in the presence of enemies, 
or even in the valley of the shadow of death. And I think that's exactly right. Some of you in your pilgrimage may be in a really hot, difficult, burning season in the wilderness. And you need to know this morning that the Lord is with you. He's the shade at your right hand. His promises are true for you when you look to him in faith and trust him. Others, maybe your season of life right now is not so bad. Hey, this Christian life isn't so bad. It's pretty fun. But it's coming. Trials coming. Hardship is coming. Suffering is coming. There is no getting out of it in a fallen world or in the Christian life. But to all of us, whatever season in the wilderness you may find yourself right now, you need to know to look to the Lord, to trust Him, whether it's a prosperous and good time right now or it's a barren and hard time. Whatever the trial is that would tempt you to not look to the Lord, whether it's prosperity or hardship, you and I this morning are called to look in faith to Jehovah, to Yahweh, to God himself, the God of the Bible who has revealed himself to be faithful and true over and over. And one of the things that helps us look to him in faith in this way this morning is our hymn, the hymn that we'll close with in just a moment. The hymn that draws our attention heavenward, that helps us to look historically at all these images that we've heard from Exodus that helps us to sing, to, to put to song God's proven faithfulness over and over and over again. And the hymn that we're going to sing this morning, you probably know to a traditional tune, an older tune, and there are all kinds of versions of this hymn, by the way, on the internet. Uh, William Williams was, was a Welshman, and you can find it sung in Welsh on YouTube if you want to hear it. But for us, we're going to sing a version uh, that was tinkered with and rewritten by Jeremy Casella, another member of Indelible Grace. But the reason that I wanted to sing this version of it is because of some of the liberty that he took with this hymn that you're going to see in your bulletin and you're going to hear sung or sing yourself. And it's, it's in the hymn towards the end where he uses a refrain a repetitive refrain of the hymn to say and to invite us to cast all of our anxiety on the Lord, to bid our anxious fears goodbye. And that particular line has meant a lot to me personally and, and how Jeremy has, has underscored it and emphasized it in the hymn. And, and I want to make that the closing application and when we sing it, I want it to be meaningful to you. And if you put it on a playlist and listen to it in the week, I want it to com continue to minister to you during your week. But those words are an invitation, and let's hear it as that. An invitation to consider your anxious fears. Whatever your particular circumstances are in life right now, whether young or old, this hymn is reminding us that we can name our anxious fears, we can number our anxious fears before the Lord, and he bids us, he invites us to say goodbye to them. 
to not be dominated by those fears anymore, to not be defined by those fears in your life, but, but to say goodbye to them. And the imagery in the song is, uh, originally it says, when I tread the verge of Jordan and bid my anxious fears goodbye. And I have this image in my mind every time I sing it, but it's the Israelites finally reading, reaching the Jordan River and on the other side is that promised land. They've been walking in the desert for 40 years waiting to come to. And it's like they have their toes in the river. Their toes are on the river, promised land on the other side. And all those anxious years, those 40 years of fears, they're all behind them. And they get to say goodbye to those fears. That hunger, that worry, that concern. Here comes the promised land of all that God has said is true, which we know to be in Christ Jesus. Now you need to understand there's, there's a literal promised land and there's a figurative promised land. They were entering the promised land as they understood it. But the promised land as we sing this is not their promised land those many years ago. It's the promised land of heaven. It's where the healing crystal fountain that heals the nations lies. So when we sing this hymn, we're, we're not singing of Old Testament promised land. We're singing of new heavens and new earth. As God would say, these are yours and the promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. So whatever your fears are, if it's fear of health, fear of diagnosis, fear of treatment. It's the ultimate question of, am I going to be okay? If your fear is financial vulnerability, then ultimately your question is, am I going to be okay? Or if your fears have anything to do with your children, with family members, with loved ones, then your ultimate question is, are they going to be okay. And I want you to hear as we close this morning that God's people have always had anxious fears about those things. Always. There's nothing new of this for us. We've always wondered, would God provide? Would he really lead? Would he really protect? Would he really care? And the answer has always been yes. He does. And I'll close with the words of Jesus to prove it. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34, Jesus' own words to his disciples, to those who look to him in faith. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body and what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all of his splendor, was dressed like one of these. 
if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagan unbelievers run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let's pray that God will help us believe this. Lord, would you, by faith, enable us, your people, to trust in Jehovah, to trust Yahweh, your proven faithfulness in our history, your promised faithfulness for our future. So, Lord, would you be very near to us this morning and this week? Would you enable us to, to number our anxious fears, to name our anxious fears? And by faith, Lord, would you give us the grace to be able to say goodbye to our anxious fears as we trust in your provision, your leadership, your guidance, and your goodness. And we ask this and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.